All right, welcome everybody. We have three more sessions tonight and just two more. And then you've endured to the end of the semester. We are going to review very quickly pages, uh, starting on page 27. And then we'll pick up where we left off. But we started part two, top of page 27 last week. And this class, How to Get the Most Out of Your Bible, has three parts to it. The bulk of it has been spent on the first part, survey of the Bible. But then a couple of weeks on this part we're in now, part two, understanding the Bible, which looks at principles of interpretation. And then tonight we're going to look at a passage of the Bible and put some of those principles into practice. We're going to look at a sample passage and how you would interpret it. And then after that, the third and final session, the last two weeks, next week and the following, will be on how to apply the Bible. We'll look at some principles of that, and then we'll be done. So, page 27, starting last week, we looked at, you see the box there on page 27, that the goal of the reading study process is to understand the author's intended meaning. Now notice it doesn't say anything there about the goal of the reading study process in the Bible is to understand the author's intended meaning. It's really the goal of any reading and study, of communication from anybody, is to understand what the person who produced it intended to say. Uh, so that's true, for example, of our Constitution. We want to know what the people who wrote it intended by what they wrote. Now, that takes some work because the Constitution is over 200 years old. So instead of just automatically interpreting what you're reading or what you're hearing, like right now you're interpreting what you're hearing from me, but you're not having to think about it, you're just doing it. And you're doing it very easily because we live at the same time and in the same place. In fact, that second paragraph under that box says that. That interpretation is not often given sufficient consideration because most interpretation occurs instantly without conscious thought. It's because most messages we receive are contemporary, same time, local, same place. But if you don't have those, then you have to think about it. But it's important to understand that you're doing the same thing. You're doing the same thing with thought about an older document, not contemporary, not originating in the same place. You're doing the same place when you have to think about it that you're doing when you don't have to think about it. All communication is interpreted this way and for this reason, to understand the intention of the person who produced it, whether in writing or, or audibly. So that's the goal of the reading study process, to understand any communication, and that is to get the author's intended meaning. And so in order to do that, you have to place everything that you read here in context. Context determines meaning. Context determines meaning. And there are a number of aspects to placing something in context. One is, bottom of page 27, you place it in its historical context. We talked about that and how to do that. And that yields a principle, if you go over to page 29, when you place something in its historical context, you're helping, uh, you're helping apply this principle to interpretation, namely that a text cannot mean what it never meant. It doesn't mean today something that it didn't mean at the time it was written. So you want to try to get at what did it mean when it was written in its historical 
context. That's the first principle we saw that last week. But then all communication has not only an historical context, but a literary context. N not all literature is the same. And so you have to ask yourself, what kind of literature am I dealing with? Again, this is, not, this is true of the Bible, but it's true of, of every kind of literature. What am I dealing with? Am I dealing with a novel here? Am I dealing with fiction? Am I dealing with nonfiction? So those are interpreted diff differently based upon the intention of the person who wrote it. They intended to use a particular form of communication in order to convey their, their message. And that's true in the Bible as well, that the Bible has 66 books in it, and they're not all the same. And so you interpret them in light of what kind of book they are. A proverb, for example, you know, we have a book in the Bible called Proverbs. Um, We've got 31 chapters in the book of Proverbs. And most of the book of Proverbs are these short sayings, proverbial kinds of sayings. And you have those outside of the Bible. Proverbs are throughout history. These little pithy, short kinds of sayings that convey something. Like poor Richard's almanac. You know, um, that says, God helps those who help themselves. I can't tell you how many people think that's in the Bible. No, I've, I've actually had people more than once over the years say, hey, where's that verse that says, God helps those who help themselves? And I say, that would be in the book of Poor Richard's Almanac. <laughs> yeah, and it's actually quite contrary to what the Bible actually teaches. God helps the helpless, according to the, according to the Bible, the spiritually helpless. Uh, or a stitch in time saves nine. A penny saved is a penny earned. Those are, those are Proverbs. They're, they're good sayings. They're generally true, uh, and that's what a proverb is, a general truth. If you don't get that right, you'll take the book of Proverbs, and you'll say everything in this general truth book is a legal guarantee. And if you do that, you can really get messed up. Proverbs 22 and verse 6 says this. Proverbs 22, 6, Train up a child in the way he should go, and when he is old, he will not depart from it. Now, if you take that as a legal guarantee, that means if you as a parent do it right, they always turn out right. But see, it's not a legal guarantee. And so if you have parents who do a good and godly job raising their children, but the child does not turn out right, it doesn't mean that the Bible was wrong. Because a proverb is a general truth. Generally, that is true. But it's not always true. It's not even always true in the Bible. In fact, God says as much. In Ezekiel chapter 18, he says there will be times where a righteous man will have a violent son, times where a violent man will have a righteous son. So it's a, it's a general truth. You interpret it accordingly. And there are parables, and you see at the bottom of page 29, poetry and narratives and letters and all of that. And the very bottom of page 29, literary context includes devices, things like figures of, of speech. So if you turn to page 30, that yields a second principle of interpretation that we saw last week. And that is all texts are not alike. All texts are not alike. So the Bible is not a bunch of Confucian proverbs. <laughs> it's got some proverbs in it, so treat them like proverbs. It's also not filled with a bunch of laws that are legal guarantees either. And so we take the type of literature that it is and we... Treat it, uh, treat it accordingly. So principle number one is a text cannot mean what it never meant. Principle number two is all texts are not alike. 
Remember, all of this applies to all communication, not just the Bible. This is just how it's done. And now, this is where we left off, I think, last week. Everybody with me on that? Is that true? All right, good. So a third type of context, in addition to historical and literary, is the grammatical context. The difference between the original language of a biblical book and the language of readers today creates more obstacles that need to be overcome in order to get to the author's intended meaning, to interpret properly. However, these can be overcome by the application of the following rules of interpretation. One, you interpret every biblical text in light of its original language. Now, you remember the original languages of the Bible. We talked about those in the first part of our, of our course here. That the first part of your Bible, the Old Testament, was written almost entirely in Hebrew. A very, very small portion in Aramaic. And then the entirety of the New Testament is written in Greek. So you got Hebrew, Greek, a little bit of Aramaic. You say, how does that help me um, if I don't know Hebrew or Greek or, or Aramaic? Well, it doesn't unless you have some people who gave you a good translation of, of all of those. Uh, but we say in the paragraph uh, there, the Bible was written in Hebrew, Greek, some Aramaic. Since most of us don't know these languages, it's necessary to obtain a good translation that converts the original languages into one's own language. And there are lots of them. There are lots of good scholarly uh, translations of the Bible into English. Uh, remember that the Bible was translated one time to give you your English uh, translation, your English version. One time. The English Bible that we have is not at the tail end of a bunch of translations, which is a, what a lot of people think. So, you know, it went through Hebrew and Greek and into, you know, Latin and into something else and into something else till finally we get it in English. And every time along the way, it's losing something in translation. So how can we possibly trust the Bible at the end of all of that? But in fact, that's not the way it happened. What we have is not the tail end of this long process, this chain of translations. It's one translation from the original language, Hebrew, Greek, Aramaic, into, into English. We use here on Sunday mornings the New International Version, but there are, there are others, the New American Standard Bible, the English Standard Bible, the King James uh, Version. There are a number of good translations for you to use in English. But one factor to bear in mind when interpreting the language of Scripture is this. All languages speak with one voice. Fancy term is univocal. That is this, a word can only mean one thing in a given context. So a word in a given language can mean multiple things. We know that, right? Because if you look up a word in the dictionary, most often there will be more than one possible definition. There may be two, there might be four, there might be five. So a word in a given language can mean more than one thing. But that word in a given context means only one thing. Context determines meaning. Remember that? And bear this in mind as well, that the people who produce dictionaries, you have probably never had occasion to think about the people who produce dictionaries, which means you have a life. That's good that you've never actually thought about that. I mean, what do you even call a person who produces a dictionary other than insane? <laughs> It's a lexicographer, lexicon, dictionary, a lexicographer. 
And, and here's what a, lexi a lexicographer does not assign meaning. The dictionary does not assign meaning. They don't create meaning. They record meaning. They simply record the way a word is used in a given language at a given time. And it might be used five different ways, and that's why a given entry might have five different possible meanings. But it's only used one way in a particular context. You put it in its grammatical context. It means one thing in that, in that setting. So we need to lose the idea, because I think a lot of us think that. We think you know, the dictionary determines what the, the meaning is. No, and in fact, the meaning of that word can change over time. That's why you have different versions of the same dictionary. So you might have the American Heritage Dictionary 23rd version. Why is there like a 20? And I'm not making that up. <laughs> 23rd version. If you don't update the language to the way it's actually being used, then now you're going to have you're going to have real confusion. Uh, I mentioned the King James Version. The King James Version is you know, a fine translation with this exception. It's really old. And there's some really old English in there. So in Matthew chapter 18 and verse 6, Matthew chapter 18 and verse 6, here's what the King James says. It has Jesus saying this quote, Suffer the little children to come unto me. God. You know, there's a, I, I get, I get um, journals, pastoral journals, articles in them for pastors and stuff. And, you know, as, as, a, as a scholarly pastor, I, the first thing I do is I look at the comics. <laughs> they, have, they always have a few. And I remember one from years ago that said, uh, you know, if you're short on time for your sermon in a particular week, here's some ways to, to fill some time during the, the sermon. Short on time to prepare. Here's some way to fill your half hour or 40 minutes or whatever it is. And one of those was preach from the King James Version. Because it will take you 20 minutes to explain what bowels of mercies means <laughs> in, the, in the King James, okay? And, but if you've got, like we do on Sunday morning, you notice I don't have to spend a whole lot of time doing that. Because it's written in more up-to-date, up-to-date language. Suffer the little children. There was a time where suffer meant allow. Allow the little children to come, unto, to come to me. And so that's what it says in more up-to-date. But, you know, we hear suffer, you know, what, what is that? Or 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. Talks about a future person that the Bible predicts is going to come on the scene and called the Antichrist. Maybe some of you guys have heard of that. Um, and says one of the things pre preventing that from happening the reason it hasn't happened as yet, but it will happen in the future, is, I'm quoting now, 2 Thessalonians chapter 2 from the King James, Only He that now letteth will let. That's what it says. With regard to keeping the Antichrist from coming, He that now letteth will let. Well, there was a time when let meant prevent. The exact opposite of what we mean. Now, when we say let, we mean allow, right? So, suffer meant allow. Let meant prevent. But let for us today means allow. And all that's in the, and all that's in the King James. So, why should we use old language like, like that? 
Um, it means one thing in a given language. Uh, it means one thing in a given context. It can mean many things in a given language. And so we interpret the Bible with that understanding that this word means one thing in this context. If that were not the case, only one word would be required to construct an entire language. That word could mean anything in any given, in any given context. And secondly, we should interpret every biblical text in light of, and this is important, larger logical units. All communication is propositional. That is, it's constructed in sentences. And, you, and when you think about communication, when you're hearing it, like right now, you're, you're hearing sentences from me and you're processing what I say in sentences in your, in your brain. That's what, in propositions. Uh, it's propositional. But those sentences don't stand alone. They're part of larger logical units. So let's just for a minute, because I don't want anybody to, to have, uh, I don't want to trigger anybody with too many bad flashbacks of going back to like fourth grade or, or anything. But let's just go back to grammar school for just about a couple minutes here, okay? And, and think about a sentence. Think about uh, a paragraph that the sentence is, is in. Uh, you think about words and, and phrases within those sentences that are part of those paragraphs. So all of these grammatical units have, are built upon with larger units. So what's the smallest, what's the smallest unit? A word. But the word doesn't stand by itself. The word's contained in a sentence. But the sentence doesn't stand by itself. It's contained in a, a paragraph. And the paragraph doesn't stand by itself. The paragraph is part of other paragraphs surrounding it. And in the case of the Bible, even all of those paragraphs that make up a book of the Bible, they don't stand by themselves either because they're part of the overall context of the Bible. So if you were to create concentric circles, you know, just the smallest circle and then an outer one and then another one. You would have the word, sentence, paragraph, book. I'm not even saying chapter. You could say chapter of the Bible, but remember the chapters weren't original. There were no chapters and verses. So word, sentence, paragraph, and then the book that that paragraph is contained in. And then the whole Bible itself is the outer ring and the outer context in which we, we place, place all of it. So that yields then a third principle. A text has only one meaning. And you do the work of putting that word, that sentence, that paragraph in its proper context. We'll move on in a second, but because this idea of Logical grammatical units is how we determine what a word, a sentence, a paragraph means in its particular setting. Because that's true, let's think about the function of those for just a minute. So the word helps you build, words help you build sentences. Sentences are contained within paragraphs. But what is a paragraph supposed to do? A paragraph is supposed to communicate uh, a, a logical thought, a unit of thought. That's what a paragraph does. Now remember I said I didn't want to trigger you going back to grammar. But, 
But many people, many of us never learned, never learned that. We never really learned to, to write and compose something. And that's probably because we just weren't taught that well in grammar school. But I remember my first year of college, freshman composition, and how many people could not write a paper. And part of the reason they couldn't write a paper is because they had never learned, like, what is, the, what is the function of all this stuff? What does a paragraph do? When am I supposed to start a new paragraph? I mean, I know when I, like, read a book that, like, it's indented every now and then. And I think that's the way many people just sort of, so they're, like, writing their paper to turn in. And they're writing for a while. They have this stream of consciousness. And they go, holy cow, it's been a while. <laughs> Let me indent <laughs> and start a new paragraph. But it's supposed to be you've started a new thought. It's a new unit of thought. And so it is, it's a terrific way then, if you're going to teach a lesson or you're going to preach a sermon, for you then to divide up how much of this am I going to use. You know, you wouldn't want to end your sermon or start your sermon or lesson in the middle of a paragraph. Because that paragraph is supposed to be a unit of thought. So each of your lessons, if you put one together, your sermon should start at the beginning of a paragraph and end at the end of a paragraph. And in a sermon, you're doing one or more of those. And I think I said this a few weeks ago, if you, just, if you pay attention, you'll notice that that's always the case. On Sunday, whatever it is we're doing, it's going to start at the beginning of a paragraph, it's going to end at the end of a paragraph, because each of those contain a unit of thought put into, put into the context. So get a translation of the Bible, a version of the Bible, that has the text laid out in paragraphs. So I am holding my New International Version. You can't see this, but um, the text is laid out in paragraphs. And the reason it's laid out in paragraphs is so that you'll think in paragraphs. You'll think in terms, okay, there's a, there's a unit of thought, and now it moves on to a new unit of thought, and moves on to a new unit of thought. The reason that's a big deal is because if you don't lay it out that way, like the NIV has done for us, like many translations do, every verse looks like a new paragraph. Every verse looks like a new paragraph. Think about the danger in that. If people think that every verse is its own unit of thought, we are not going to take verses out of what? That's exactly how it happens. So the most misused verse in the Bible, without fail, is judge not that you be not judged. Don't judge me. Jesus said, don't judge. There is a verse, Matthew 7, 1. The entirety of the verse says this, judge not that you be not judged. We want to see what paragraph that's in, don't we? We want to see what the context of that is, don't we? And if you look at the paragraph that that's in, and you look at the context of that, Jesus is saying, do not judge in a hypocritical way. He's not saying you never judge. He's saying you never judge in a particular way. Because if you read the verses right after that, that's exactly what he's condemning. So it's just an example of the danger of thinking that every verse is its own little proverb. Every verse is its own thought. 
and then we end up taking it out of, out of context. A text has only one meaning. Now, note, bottom of page 30. Because the Bible is composed of human elements, what are those human elements? Human language, uh, human personalities by the authors that produced it. So it's, it's composed of and comprised of these human elements. It is to be interpreted as normal human communication. So the principles of interpretation that we've talked about are applicable to any human communication, not just the Bible, as I've been saying. However, the Bible does differ from other human communication in that, in addition to the human authors, the Bible has one ultimate author, namely God. Since there is ultimately a single author of the Bible, here's what that yields. Internal unity. Now, here's what we're saying there. You've got 66 books in the Bible. Those 66 books were written by 40 different people. And if you don't have superintending that process of those 40 different people living at different times in different places, putting, pulling the Bible together, if you don't have one ultimate author superintending all of that, then what are you going to have? You're going to have all of these disparate thoughts from all of these people from different times that are going to contradict each other. You can't put five people in a room today, right now, contemporaneously, and have them come out with a consistent message. Let alone 40 different authors writing centuries apart. How does that happen? It's because ultimately there's one author of the Bible, God, superintending all that the human authors did. That's different than other communication. Everything else we've talked about so far is the same for all communication. But this one difference applies to the Bible. God wrote it ultimately. And since there is ultimately a single author of the Bible, it has this internal unity. This means the Bible will never contradict itself. You wouldn't have that guarantee with anything else other than the Bible because God superintended it. It will never contradict itself. So what does that mean for us? Top of page 31. It means you should interpret difficult passages in the light of those that are clear. If the Bible clearly teaches a doctrine in one passage, then another passage cannot contradict it. If you understand the meaning of a clear passage, it helps you interpret a difficult passage in that you already know what it cannot mean. I'll give examples of that in a second. But here, you know, we are talking about, I'm talking about the importance of the word and the word within the sentence and the sentence within the, and how important all of that is. And I've noticed the last couple of weeks that somehow the printing on the page in this notebook we gave you, yeah, there's no spacing. Yeah. So I'm talking about how important it is to communicate in words and, and all of that. And we've made up words. If you understand. No space, okay? You see it there. So I've got to take this back to uh, the printer. And um, it's not going to be pretty when we talk about when we talk about that. No, I'll be, I'll be good. I'll be Christian about it and all of that. But we've got these non-spacings throughout, the, uh, throughout the notebook. All that's going to have to be changed for next time. I have no earthly idea how that happened. All right, let us move on. So here's an example of that interpret those that are difficult in light of those that are clear. 
There are some passages in the Bible where if you read that passage and you haven't read other passages in the Bible, that passage alone, just by itself, could look like a person, uh, that a person could lose their salvation. You know what I mean, mean when I say that? That a person could be a Christian at one point in their life, but then something happens, they, they do something, they sin in some particular way, and they lose that. They lose their relationship with God completely. They were going to go to heaven, they're now going to hell. And that's, that's the idea. And there are some passages in the Bible, you read that and you go, that looks like somebody who was a, a Christian, and now they're not. And the, the biggest one, there, there are a handful of them, but the, the biggest one is in Hebrews chapter 6. Hebrews chapter 6, verses 4 through 6. Hebrews 6, 4 through 6. And in that passage, it talks about all of these things that have happened to a person, that they've once been enlightened, it says, and they've tasted of the heavenly gift. And it goes on to talk about all these things that have occurred to this person. And then it says, if they fall away, it is impossible to renew them again unto repentance. That's what it says. So it sounds like a person who's been a Christian for a period of time. It could mean that. That's what it sounds like it could mean. And then if that person falls away from it, okay, they've, they've lost it. Can it mean that? Well, if you've read other passages in the Bible, and God doesn't contradict himself, like you read uh, John 5.24. So I gave you Hebrews 6, verses 4 through 6, but John 5.24. John 5.24. Jesus says this, He who hears my word and believes on him who sent me has everlasting life and shall not come into condemnation but is passed from death into life. That's what Jesus says. That seems pretty ironclad. I mean, it seems that he said it like a few different ways in case you, I, it's almost like I, I can, Jesus is thinking, so in case you missed the point, <laughs> and shall not in the future <laughs> come into condemnation, but is now passed from death into life, right? He says it a bunch of different ways. He who hears my word, it's present tense, and believes on him who sent me, present tense, has in the present something called eternal life. So if you have something in the present that's eternal, that means lasts forever, then it's impossible to ever not have that if it lasts forever. Am I telling the truth here? All right, so now when I come to Hebrews 6, and it looks like that at first glance. It can't mean that because Jesus said, wait a minute, that can't happen. They can't come into condemnation in the future. So I need to take a closer look at that because it can't contradict itself. So what's Hebrews 6 talking about? Hebrews 6 is talking about somebody who's been given great privileges from God. Great and gracious privileges from God. Somebody who grew up in church, just to use a contemporary, they grew up in church and they heard the gospel over and over. And they had Sunday school teachers, you know, who, who bathed them in love and in truth and all of that. And they had all of these spiritual privileges. If they turn away from that, this is the only way you're going to have a relationship with God. 
If you fall away from that, if you refuse that, there is no other way. That is what Hebrews 6 is talking about. But I can understand if that's the only passage you have, thinking, hey, it looks like somebody could. So that's what we mean when we say interpret difficult passages in light of those that are clear. You already know what that difficult passage can't mean once you know these clear passages. Secondly, interpret each biblical book in the light of its overall biblical context. You know, the there's the immediate context of a word within a sentence, within a paragraph. That paragraph fits into the paragraphs before and after it. So you've got all of that. But the widest possible context is that outer circle that I talked about. It's the entire Bible. And so we interpret each biblical book, since God wrote all of them, then in light of the overall teaching of the Bible. We've already noted that each passage must be interpreted in light of larger logical units. Since the whole of the Bible has one author, the largest logical unit is the entire Bible itself. An overall biblical context refers to this, content and time. So you want to know where the passage you're looking at, where that fits in terms of the chronology of the Bible. And the Bible was written over a 1,600-year period. The first book of the Bible was written at least 3,500 years ago. The last book of the Bible was written 2,000 years ago. So you're looking at a particular book. You want to know where within that 1,500-year period when the Bible was being produced, where did this one? What was written before it that would inform what's in it? So was it written bef before a particular book that you've read, or was it written after a particular book you've read? And remember, when we went through our survey of the Bible, where it shows up in the order doesn't tell you where it was written, necessarily. I mean, what's the first book of the Bible? Just, this is not hard, okay? <laughs> first book of the Bible, Genesis. Genesis starts with the oldest event in the universe, namely the creation of the universe. It starts with the oldest event. It's not necessarily the oldest book. Probably the oldest book in the Bible is Job. It appears that Job lived at a time when there were dinosaurs. In the book of Job, he describes creatures that are probably dinosaurs. By the time Moses comes along, who wrote Genesis, you know, dinosaurs are, are long gone. And so Job is probably the, the oldest book. But Job is, you know, about midway through your, your Old Testament. So you want to create, put it in its time sequence. Where is this? When was this written in relation to the other books? And then also content. If books of the Bible deal with the same subject matter, then compare those and what they, and what they say, since God is the one who wrote both. So here's the fourth and final principle you get out of that. The Bible communicates a unified message. So you've got these four principles of interpretation. A text cannot mean what it never meant. All texts are not alike. A text has only one meaning. The Bible communicates a unified message. If you stay with those, the Bible is not this hopelessly obscure book then. It can be understood. God gave it for it to be understood. And if we'll put it in its context like we have to do with all other communication, we'll be good to go. 
All right, what do I do with that then? Middle of page 31, putting it into practice. So let's see if we can finish this tonight, and then we'll spend our last two weeks looking at principles of applying the Bible. So putting it into practice. What I want to do, what we do in this section is we want to put to use these rules of interpretation. And we could have chosen any passage anywhere in the Bible to do this. But I chose the one you see at the bottom of page 31. It's from 1 Corinthians chapter 14, and it's these two verses, 18 and 19. I thank God that I speak in tongues more than all of you. But in the church, I would rather speak five intelligible words to instruct others than 10,000 words in a tongue. And by the way, if you were to look that up in an NIV, those two, those two verses, those two lines, are a paragraph as well. So those two sentences form one paragraph that add a unit of thought to what's happening before it and what's happening after it. And we're going to remind ourselves about what was happening before it and happening after it. So that we can have some idea about what the Bible's talking about when it talks about speaking in tongues. So I didn't necessarily choose an easy thing, did I? If you know what speaking in tongues is, uh, I grew up Pentecostal, most of you know, and the church I grew up in, people practiced what they called speaking in tongues. And speaking in tongues in my Pentecostal church was a person standing up in the assembly, and this is the way it happened in our church. I'm just telling you this is the way it happened. A person would be, uh, would be compelled by the Holy Spirit, was the idea. The Holy Spirit has moved upon this person in a given moment to stand up and talk. And so they, in the middle of the service, the end of the service, this could happen at any time. And the Holy Spirit moves, and the person begins to talk. And in the church I grew up in, they talked in a language that nobody understood, including the person speaking. This was a Holy Spirit language. This was speaking in tongues. This is a gift from God. I'm telling you what my Pentecostal upbringing said. This is a gift from God. And God may know what it means. We don't know what it means. But it's motivated by the Holy Spirit. So I'm a kid. I grew up with that. I grew up seeing that. My dad practice speaking in tongues. My dad was the pastor of the church. My dad passed away when I was 11. His brother, my uncle, took over the church. My uncle spoke in these languages that nobody understood. My mom was the pastor's wife for a number of years. My dear mom was not sure about this speaking in tongues thing. Boy, you talk about being in a dilemma. Her husband's the pastor her curious little boy keeps going, Mom, what's Dad doing? Are we supposed to be doing that? And she tries to be diplomatic. My mom never spoke in tongues. And that was looked on, I learned later, with real suspicion. Because you don't have the fullness of the Holy Spirit if you don't do this, was the idea. Okay? So I'm telling you all that background to say, this is a big deal. 
What is speaking in tongues? And the chapter in which these two verses are located, 1 Corinthians 14, has 40 verses in it, and they're all about this. So let's walk through it. Top of page 32. In order to understand the author's intended meaning of those verses, or any others, study the words, the sentences, the paragraphs, the book, and then correlate them. So remember we said the smallest unit, word, then sentence, then paragraph, then the book, and then the overall. So let's do that. Let's, let's step through it. So here we've got those, those two verses. Study the words. Choose words to study. Choose these kinds of words to study. Key words and unfamiliar words. So in those two sentences, what are a couple of key words? Well, key words are those that indicate the topic of a passage. The passage at hand has to do with tongues. So it would be helpful to know something about that. And then choose any unfamiliar words. Key words, but also unfamiliar words. If one's using an up-to-date translation of the scriptures, then there won't be that many unfamiliar words other than the combination of no spaces. <laughs> that one's kind of unfamiliar to me, to me. In our passage, the author prefers his readers speak words that are intelligible. Now, that's maybe not a word we use all the time, but if that's unfamiliar, then we'll want to determine its meaning. So define words in the passage. Define the keywords and then define the unfamiliar words. To define the keywords, consult the dictionary. Most often we want to know the definition, look it up. But a dictionary definition offers, as we've talked about, several meanings for a word. It's necessary to determine which, if any, is appropriate in our context. A Bible student must also realize that a dictionary offers the range of possible meanings based on the word's usage in communication today, contemporary. Because of that, a standard diction dictionary may not always help with biblical words. You guys follow that? All right. So there actually is a thing called a Bible dictionary to talk about how, then, a word is used in the Bible. A Bible dictionary is designed for that. A given word may have several different usages throughout the Bible. However, because language is univocal, as we saw, it only has one meaning in a given context. Therefore, one must choose the definition most appropriate to the text at hand. So, we've chosen this keyword tongue. Bible dictionary lists two primary uses of the word tongue in the Bible. First one is literally the physical organ in the mouth, your tongue. Right. The second one is spoken languages or dialects. So which definition fits our passage? Well, notice the author writes regarding speaking in tongues, indicating a language rather than speaking with your tongue. So in our two little verses, we're talking about speaking in tongues is speaking in languages. Okay. Now the unfamiliar words. We've chosen this word uh, intelligible. Consult a dictionary. Consult a Bible dictionary. The major advantage of a Bible dictionary is it defines a word according to the way it's used in the Bible itself. But one disadvantage is that Bible dictionaries are generally arranged by topics or subjects. And as a result of that, they don't provide an exhaustive list of every word used in the Bible. And so the word intelligible, it turns out, doesn't appear in most Bible dictionaries. In those cases, you can survey the Bible's use of a word by looking up the references that contain it, and a concordance does that. So then we talk about consulting a Bible concordance. Now, you guys know what a concordance is? 
then a concordance uh, is some Bibles have a concord little small concordance at the back of the actually at the back of the Bible itself. So I'm my Bible here has a little concordance in the back. And by in alphabetical order, it's just got a number of words, and if you look at that word, it gives you the passages in the Bible where that word's used. Now, it's it's small. I'm only, you know, I've got about 20 pages worth or so here. So it doesn't cover every word in the Bible. Uh, back when we didn't have the internet, you didn't have things digitized. If you got a concordance that covered most of the words in the Bible, that was going to be pretty thick, right? If you, if you got an exhaustive concordance, the word exhaustive concordance means every word in the Bible. <laughs> and I still have on my shelf the remnants of things that I had to use before things were digitized, okay? So I've got exhaustive concordance, I've got smaller concordance. Some of you have those, may have those as well. But you can, you, can do, you can look up a concordance for free online now. And you can look it up pretty quick. And you can say, tell me all the places where this word is used in the Bible. All right, back to page 33 then. Consult a Bible concordance. You can do that digitally now. And use of a, last sentence of that paragraph under C, of a concordance for the word intelligible reveals it's used again in our very chapter, it turns out. Verse 9, we're looking at verses 18 and 19, but in verse 9 it says this, Unless you speak intelligible words with your tongue, how will anyone know what you're saying? Now notice here it says with your tongue. So with your mouth, with the physical organ, when you speak, how's anybody going to know what you're saying unless you speak intelligible words? Nobody's going to know what you're saying. So now we come up just by putting it in its context in the same chapter, what a definition of intelligible is. Bottom of page 33. Intelligible refers to words that allow the listener to, quote, know what you're saying. Intelligible words are words that can be understood. All right, now before we move on, we're starting to get warm here, aren't we? As to whether or not, when I was a kid and people would stand up and they would speak in languages that nobody understood, were we on the right track here? Maybe not, since it appears that intelligible words are really important. But let us move on. Top of page 34. Study the words, but study the sentences. And that means the structure of the sentences. All sentences are composed of parts of speech. More flashbacks for you going back to grammar school. Nouns describe person, places, and things. Verbs describe action or being and so on. Even seemingly insignificant words like uh, uh, to perform a function. So for example, the author of our passage says this. I would rather speak five intelligible words to instruct others than 10,000 words in a tongue. In this context, the word to indicates the author's reason for preferring words that are understandable. It's so that others may be instructed. That's what it says. To instruct others. For the purpose of instructing others. Study the structure of the sentences. Study the relationship of the sentences to each other. 
The relationship of sentences to each other is indicated by the use of words that communicate that relationship. So in our passage, the author began the second sentence with the word but to indicate a contrast. So here's the verses again. I thank God I speak in tongues more than all of you, but in the church I would rather speak five intelligible words to instruct others than 10,000 words in a tongue. Since the word tongue means language, and since the author prefers understandable words, it means, though he has the ability to speak in languages that some may not understand in the church, the purpose of speech is to instruct others. Anybody here speak a second language? Maybe I can speak a second language. Nobody. Okay, all right. Well, but obviously some people are bilingual or trilingual and can speak multiple languages. When we, when we, come, when we gather for church, what language do you all prefer? <laughs> right? The one that we all speak comes in handy. So the fact that you can speak additional languages doesn't mean you should speak those languages when in the presence of people that don't understand them. Truth? Okay. So, the relationship of the sentences, I have the ability. I, Paul, who wrote this. Paul knew at least five languages. At least. But in, the, in a given context, he's going to speak in a language that people understand. Since the word tongue means language, and since the author prefers understandable words, it means he has this ability, but in the church, he seeks to instruct. And here's a sample list of terms used to connect sentences. You don't often think of these things, but I'm just, we have it here for you to, to think about. But is a contrast. Just as is a comparison. Because and for give you reasons, and so on. All right, so you study the words, the sentences, the paragraphs. You define the content of a paragraph. How many, how many sentences slash verses comprise a, a paragraph? Well, the good news is if you get the kind of translation I was telling you about, you don't have to do that. They did it for you already. It's already laid out in paragraphs. And our two verses, as I told you, 18 and 19, Actually form a paragraph for us. So define that. And I say, top of page 35, what I mentioned earlier, a new verse is not necessarily a new paragraph. Literary types type affects paragraph structure. So remember we said that the Bible's got these 66 books, but they're not all the same. So you've got Proverbs. You've got Psalms. Psalms are filled with a lot of poetry. And so if you've got the NIV and you go to the Psalms, you will find it laid out in a way that shows the poetic structure to it, which is really helpful. Uh, so can you tell I'm selling like the NIV? Here, I don't get any royalties or anything. I'm just trying to save you some work, okay? Because some people already did the work for you with that. Literary type affects paragraph structure. And then, with all that, determine what does this paragraph, what's it saying? So B, middle of page 35, remember the message of a given paragraph supports the overall theme of the text in which it's contained. Our passage, these two verses in 1 Corinthians 14, 18 and 19, forms a new thought supporting the author's argument that only understandable words are to be spoken in the church. The preceding paragraph, is made up of these five verses. 
13 through 17. And it contains illustrations of the folly, the foolishness of speaking in unintelligible languages. Our verses contain the author's own practice in order to avoid that error of speaking unintelligible languages in the church. And the next one, the next paragraph is two verses. And it offers a direct challenge to the readers to think in a mature fashion on this matter. Once you've defined the content of the paragraphs, it shouldn't then be difficult to determine the message of each of those paragraphs. All right, let's try to pull it together then. Study that book that's containing that passage. So you've got the words, you've got the sentences, you've got the paragraph, but all that's contained in an overall book. In this case, the book is 1 Corinthians. So we want to know something about, all right, what's 1 Corinthians about? How does this whole thing about speaking in tongues fit into the overall context of this book that it's contained in? It's, so we recommend, bottom of page 35, that you read the entire book. It's highly recommended you read the entire book through in one sitting, if possible. That provides an overview of the flow of thought and other insights that will aid your interpretation. So, a reading of 1 Corinthians reveals the church had a number of problems, of which speaking in tongues was only one. In addition, the book of 1 Corinthians indicates the root of those problems was pride, resulting in a lack of love for other people. That's what you find in chapters 8, 9, 10, 11, 12, and 13. So chapter 13 of 1 Corinthians, does anybody know what that chapter is called? Uh, commonly, 1 Corinthians 13 is called the love chapter. At weddings, when you hear love is patient, love is kind, that, that's 1 Corinthians 13. Why is it talking, why is it talking about love in 1 Corinthians 13? Because the Corinthians didn't have it. <laughs> and the fact that they didn't have it showed up in a bunch of ways including the fact that they didn't care whether you understood what they were saying. Who cares about you? This is my gift. This is me speaking in tongues. Deal with it. And as you read through the book of 1 Corinthians, you see that this was the kind of approach the Corinthians took, a kind of self-centered approach. Top of page 36, who wrote it? very first verse tells us Paul wrote it. Who did he write it to? Second verse tells us it was to the church at Corinth. Why did he write it? Now get this, follow this. Why did Paul write to the Corinthians? He says in the very first chapter in verse 11, we have it for you there, some from Chloe's household have informed me that there are quarrels among you. So, first chapter can you see the church at Corinth? They all gather and they say, hey, everybody, got a letter from Paul. Let's read it. And they get just you know, a few lines into it and it says, so some from Chloe's household have told me, and everybody starts looking around, so where's Chloe? <laughs> all right, so Chloe snitched and said, hey, Paul, we got big problems. And so he's writing to them about their big problems that include quarrels. And you read the first few chapters of 1 Corinthians, and he's talking about the, the origin of those quarrels. They quarreled about whose, whose preacher was the best. Some say I'm of Paul. Some say I'm of Apollos. Some say I'm of Peter. Some say I'm of Christ. Can you see that group in there? <laughs> you guys, I'm of Christ. 
They all had their own guy. They went to court with each other, chapter 6. All kinds of divisions and quarrels going on, all rooted in their pride. Chloe told them about this. But then if you look at chapter 7, middle of page 36, when you get to chapter 7, here's how it starts. Now, for the matters you wrote about. Ah, so I've covered the quarrels that Chloe told me you're having. Now you guys have written to me saying, how do we handle some of these things? How do we handle marriage, divorce, and remarriage? Because that's what chapter 7 is all about, marriage, divorce, and remarriage. What do we do? He says, so now I'm going to go through those. Now this is interesting. If you, if you just read through 1 Corinthians, if you just read through, you, you might notice this. You come to chapter 7, it starts now for the matters you wrote about. And he starts to go through things. And the next few chapters start with this word, now about. Chapter 7, now about the things you wrote about. And chapter 7 deals with marriage, divorce, remarriage. Chapter 8, now about food that has been sacrificed to idols. That's how it starts. Now, so what is this issue of food sacrificed to idols? Why is he addressing that? Because they wrote to him about it. Now, about the matters you wrote about. The first one is apparently marriage, divorce, and remarriage. Now about this other thing you wrote about. What do we do about food that's been sacrificed to idols in the temple in our town called Corinth? Paul. And he gives them instruction about that. And when you read what he says about that, he takes them to task about their lack of love for each other, their pride. He does that for three chapters. Then he comes to chapter 12. Chapter 12 starts now about spiritual gifts. They apparently had written about marriage, divorce, and remarriage, food sacrificed to idols, and about uh, spiritual gifts. Paul, what do we do about spiritual gifts? Man, we're a wreck. Just like we're a wreck on everything else, we're a wreck on spiritual gifts. Everybody's coming together. Everybody's got a prophecy. Everybody's got a tongue. What are we supposed to be doing here? And he spends 1 Corinthians 12, 13, and 14 talking about spiritual gifts. Chapter 14 specifically about speaking in tongues. So with all of that, let's put it all together in two minutes. Yikes. All right. Study the correlation of the passage. Bottom of page 36. Although the Bible has many human authors, it ultimately has one author, so we can pull together what the Bible teaches about the same subject from different places. So where is the first time in the Bible that this thing called speaking in tongues ever occurred? The first time chronologically. Okay, okay, that's good. <laughs> that really is good. Old Testament, going back to the first part of, of your Bible, Babel. Yeah, that's, that's very good. Uh, in the New Testament, that's good, in the overall Bible. In the New Testament, though, this gift of speaking in tongues, the first time the gift of speaking in tongues, at Babel it was a punishment to separate them. First time this gift of speaking in tongues occurs is in Acts chapter 2 on the day of Pentecost. And the apostles begin to speak in tongues. So now the question is, when they, they spoke in tongues, 
what kind of tongue, what kind of languages were these? Were they languages people understood or not? The first time it ever happened, did people understand the language? Look at page 37. Under number one, compare the message of related passages. You see Acts chapter 2 here. When the day of Pentecost came, they began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit enabled them. Enabled them. Now, there were staying in Jerusalem God-fearing Jews from every nation under heaven. When they heard this sound, a crowd came together in bewilderment because each one heard them in their own language being spoken. Well, look at that. That's the first time this ever happened. And the first time it ever happened, the people who heard it understood it. Now, put the chronology together. When is the day of Pentecost happening? You don't necessarily expect you to know this, although you know, we did a survey of the Bible, so you know you might. But that happened in 33 A.D. 33 A.D. Paul is writing to the Corinthians, around 60 A.D. You're looking at about 25 years later. 25 years later, the Corinthians have corrupted what speaking in tongues was originally designed to be. Can you guys think of anything else the Corinthians had corrupted 25 years later? One of the chapters in 1 Corinthians is chapter 11, where Paul talks about the observance of the Lord's table. When was the Lord's table instituted? Same year, as a matter of fact, 33 AD. But about 25 years later, Paul has to write to the Corinthians and say, you guys got this completely wrong. You're observing it selfishly. They have these feasts and they actually run in front of each other to get to the food first. He has to tell them... <laughs> That's not what this is about. So the Corinthians were a complete wreck. If you want to model your church after some church in the New Testament, don't make it that one. If you want to go to a chapter in the Bible and say, the reason we do this is because the Corinthians did it, you're in big trouble. They almost did nothing right. I mean, that's, not, that's, that's, that's hardly an exaggeration. Paul had to take them to task for just about everything. So, as you compare the 25 years, as I say on page 37 there, look at page 38, and now you can apply this. Page 38. So, this whole thing was designed to be languages that people understand. It became corrupted 25 years later, so that it became this heavenly language that nobody understands. And Paul has to correct them and say, in the church, you don't do that. Just like you've messed up the Lord's table, you've messed up speaking in tongues, and you've messed up a bunch of other things. And so top of page 38, apply now related teaching. Develop principles. As noted above, the events of Acts precede the writing of Corinthians. Further study of speaking in tongues would reveal Acts is the first recorded occurrence of it in the entire Word of God. Therefore, the original purpose for tongues is clearly given in Acts 2. Communicate a message to others in their own language. By the time 1 Corinthians was written, the practice had apparently degenerated to the point that unintelligible speech was considered to be a gift from God. Paul's letter to the church of Corinth sought to correct this and other errors. The teaching of 1 Corinthians 14 on tongues is consistent with the original purpose set forth in Acts chapter 2. This is why only words that instruct others are deemed to be appropriate for a church service. 
So the principle of edifying or building up others is what's taught in this passage. We do for one another, when we come together, what we do for the sake of one another, not for ourselves. And then apply that to your life. Activity which directly builds up or facilitates the building up of others is to be our primary concern. Preaching, teaching, singing, it's all to be done for the edification of others, not self-glorification. For those directly involved in those kind of ministries, then it's obvious how we apply it. For those that aren't preaching and teaching and leading the singing, people like uh, ushers, nursery workers, custodians, and so on, it teaches that these labors are valuable to the extent that they facilitate the building up of others in the church. Here's some suggested Bible study tools. I went over by four minutes. Forgive me for I have sinned. See you, see you next week, Lord willing. <laughs>